Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So this past week, I was up in Charlotte, North Carolina, which uh, it was cold. <laughs> it's like in the 40s, you know? I got to wear a jacket with fuzz inside of it and be comfortable. I kind of liked it, but I also kind of liked not wearing it when I got off the plane back in West Palm Beach, Florida. So there's that, you know? But anyway, I was there for a, a thing called, a conference called the National Gathering of Fresh Expressions. United Methodist, which is a fancy way of saying a place where people who are unsatisfied with the status quo of the American church can come and talk about how unsatisfied they are and what we are going to do about it. And so you might be surprised to learn this, but there was a lot of people there. Yeah, there was like 700 people there. And you may also... uh, be surprised to learn this, but I'm not the only pastor in this world with tattoos. There are at least five others, okay? Yeah, I thought I was special, and here we are. So what I, what I heard there, though, what I heard there is, was a lot of hope, but also a, a sobering reminder that the time is now for the church to embrace new ways of engaging the world around it. So I had the uh, the pleasure of listening to a a lot of different speakers, a whole bunch of them from the Florida Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, because we're the best conference of the United Methodist Church. But one of my my favorite speakers was uh, a man who's not from Florida, he is a man named Dr. Rodrigo Cruz, uh, who serves as both pastor of a multi-site church and as a district superintendent uh, in another conference. And Dr. Rodrigo Cruz is a Mexican-American, and he made this analogy, and he told me that I could use it as long as I didn't do what Americans do and turn it into Taco Bell. <laughs> and you'll understand when I tell you the analogy, right? So Dr. Cruz said, imagine if we, if we the church were a Mexican restaurant and all that we served was tacos. And I was like, I'm on board with this because I really, really like tacos. And so that sounds awesome. And he said, but here's the thing. In our hypothetical, theoretical Mexican restaurant, our tacos are not very good. <laughs> we're kept in business by a few people who show up because either they have bad taste in, their, in tacos or because they feel so bad for us that they want to keep us in business. But generally, no one else shows up. From time to time, an out-of-towner will drive by and stop in. 
but no one else comes because the whole town knows that it's not worth coming to our Mexican restaurant. And it's not that they don't want tacos. It's not that they don't like tacos. They love tacos. They think about tacos all day. But here's the thing. The whole city would rather go hungry than come and have tacos with us. And that is the reality of the church in America right now. The world doesn't hate God as much as you think. The world doesn't hate God as much as the world would like you to believe. But the world would rather go hungry than eat the tacos that they think that we sell here. They would rather live in ignorance of the good gift that we have than come and risk being disappointed once again. And that's a really sad reality, but it's not a reality that is incurable. It's a reality that we simply need to acknowledge so that we can give ourselves the space that we need to dream about and to take action towards who the church can be in the future. It's an invitation to revisit the recipe. And part of the reason that people don't want to be a part of the church is because they believe that the words exclusive and church are synonymous. And here's the deal. That's not supposed to be true. But often it is. The church is supposed to be inclusive. The church is supposed to be a place where every single person who wants to know God gets a chance to know God. And I believe that we realize this reality here at First Church. And that's why we have adopted this final core value of unwavering inclusivity. And so if you're just tuning in, you're visiting us, you're like, what the heck is this guy talking about with values? We're at the very last, the sixth sermon in a sermon series called This Is Us, where we're looking at who we are and a new strategic plan that we have. See, we have a mission of flooding the treasure coast with the transformational love of Jesus. And we have a vision that we will create, equip, and mobilize 610 disciples by 2030 so that heaven and earth collide on the treasure coast. And we are going to accomplish living out that mission and making that vision come to fruition by living out our core values, which are passionate worship, faithful development, radical generosity, missional outreach, and finally, unwavering inclusivity. Now, inclusivity is a bit of a loaded term in our society right now, right? Some people love it, some people not so much. And it's all because the conversations that typically happen around this word happen in the political realm or in other realms that aren't the Jesus realm, right? And so what I need you to do is for the next 20 minutes, drop all of your baggage, all of your preconceptions about the word inclusive, And let me tell you what it really means, what your Bible says it means, what 
I don't know, Jesus says that it means and what it looks like for us to maybe actually live that out. And so to be inclusive means to be a safe space. It means that barriers that separate us from being the community that God created human beings to be no longer exist. It means that all people are able to find a home here if they so choose to make here their home. It means that we become more like the vision that God has for this world. And so, the very end of your Bible, we get a vision of God's ultimate plan for humanity. This is the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And so this is uh, the Apostle John writing the book of Revelation. And what is happening is he's having the veil between that which is seen and that which is unseen torn down. Revelation is called Revelation because it reveals to the biblical author what is going on in the spiritual realm, also known as what's going on in heaven. And this is what he sees, an unfathomable multitude of people from every walk of life, from every nook and cranny of the earth, every language standing at the throne of Jesus together, proclaiming his lordship. It doesn't say that they all look the same. It doesn't say that they all speak the same language. It simply says that they are there in solidarity, worshiping God together. They are different. They represent the diverse reality that is the human experience, and yet they are united by the one thing that unites us all, our creator, Jesus Christ. And this is really important for us to understand if we are a church who believes that we are called to make heaven and earth collide. It's important if we are a church who wears shirts that say Operation 610 and hold the scripture on them, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's it like in heaven? Unity under the lordship of Christ that celebrates the diversity of humanity. And so if, if that's what heaven is like, then that's what the church needs to be. The church needs to be a safe space, an inclusive space for the diverse reality of humanity. Okay, well, that sounds really nice, right? What does that actually mean? What does it mean for us? Or, or perhaps the better question is, you know, like, what does that actually look like? Well, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus shows us what it looks like. So this is a story from uh, Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. 
It says one of the Pharisees, those were like the hoity-toity religious people, you know. You know those folks? One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And so he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. So, uh, kind of weird, right? It's like, this is dinner, lady. <laughs> like in the dust bowl of the world, you know, his feet are dirty, like... But when we get past, like, this really kind of taboo thing for us here today, we can focus on some of the important points, right? This woman, some traditions hold that it was Mary Magdalene. There's no proof of that, but sure, why not, right? She's identified by Luke as a sinner, which means everybody's a sinner, right? So, like, why... Why mention it, right? It means that she probably had a pretty bad reputation. That was her identity all throughout town. And, you know, it's probably linked to her chosen or forced into profession. Let you use your imagination to connect the dots. She enters into the house of this religious leader named Simon absolutely beyond her comfort zone. These are the class of people that gave her the, the identity of sinner in the first place, right? And so these are not the people whom she or anyone else with the, the social stigma of being a sinner would naturally and willingly walk into and interact with. but she knows what's inside of that house. She knows what she has to gain by going inside. She knows that Jesus is in this place. And her desire to meet Jesus is stronger than her desire to avoid people who have hurt her, who have labeled her as unclean. And so she enters and she immediately brings her gifts to the literal feet of Jesus and begins to serve him. And so that's the scene. A social outcast, a throwaway, goes out of her comfort zone to give her gifts and service to Jesus. It's like a pastor's dream come true. But it is absolutely not a Pharisee's dream come true, okay? So this is, this is the very next line. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. It's classic, classic Pharisee speak here. And Jesus' response is this. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. I hope when I get to heaven, that's not Jesus' opening line to me, right? 
I have something to say to you. <laughs> Teacher, he said, speak. So Jesus says, a certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose, the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at this table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, the main point here is that Jesus has welcomed this woman into a space. And the people who inhabit that space have tried to disqualify her. And really, to disqualify Jesus for accepting her. And Jesus' point is that they aren't the ones who get to qualify this woman. She qualifies herself by seeking Jesus, and Jesus validates her qualifications by restoring her life through his saving grace. And so to be a church that is founded in unwavering inclusivity means that we fully confess and understand the fact that the burden of qualifying someone's belonging lies solely on that person and is validated by Jesus, whom they have come to encounter. And this is really church or Christianity 101, but for too long the church of Christ has hidden away or thrown away people who show up with their gifts and a desire to serve Jesus because they don't fit the mold. We've done this knowingly, and we've done this unknowingly. And when we do it knowingly, it's called spiritual abuse. And when we do it unknowingly, it's still spiritual abuse. It's sin. Institutional sin. And the church for a long time has embraced the moniker, all are welcome. But welcome isn't enough. Honestly, I think we should stop saying all are welcome. Like, just remove that from our vocabulary because all are welcome isn't enough. Sure, people might show up where they're welcome. But do you know why people stay? Why people choose to belong? It's because they're valued. People stay where they're valued. 
all are valued. That's what we should say now. That's what this church is about, valuing all of God's people. We value you. And when we say we value you, it means that we see people the way that God sees them. It means that their struggles matter. It means that their pain matters. It means that their joys matter. It means that their doubts matter. It means that their journey to the transformed life matters. It means mind, body, and spirit, they matter. It means that their story matters. And here, in this place, we offer the cure to that which ails them. In this place, we are a representation of that which can heal the ails of the world. So being an unwaveringly inclusive church means that we value every person that walks in the door. But it also means that we value enough for them to walk inside the doors just yet. Being unwaveringly inclusive means that we focus on how we can be better rather than focusing on getting defensive when we are confronted with a growing edge that we might have. It means that we value the experience and the story of all of God's people. It means that we value the gifts and the service that all people have to offer. It means that we don't build barriers and try to play the role of bouncer at the door. It means that we listen to the people and become open to changing the recipe. until we are known as the place that feeds the whole city. It means that when we say all, we actually literally mean all. It means that heaven and earth look a little bit more alike here on the corner of Orange 7th and Avenue A. And so I pray that over the past month and a half, you've gained some clarity about who we are here. I hope that if you've been here for a while that you've been stretched and challenged a little bit. And if you're new with us, I hope that you're intrigued. Let's talk about it. Let us show you just how much we value you. And so this week I want you to do something for me. I want you to think of one person in your life who probably needs to know that you value them. And I want you to, to call them or text them or send them a letter that says, you know, I value you and so does Jesus. Because friends, we are on an amazing journey together. All of these core values are both true now and also not yet fully realized. That's the beauty of them. They, they are who we are, but also aspirations for who we can and will become. 
610 disciples in six years is a large number. But when we show people who we are, we gain an advantage. When we show people who we are, they'll realize who we are not. That we aren't what the world says about Christians and the church. That we aren't the church that hurt them earlier in their life. That we aren't a church that only cares about itself. We'll see that we are a church that reflects Jesus and transforms the world. And that, my friends, that's enough. That's enough. So let's pray together. Gracious and Holy One, we thank you for the ways that you continue to show your face to us and to lead us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so God, help us to be people who make sure that every single person knows that they are valued here. That they are valued by you. And that there are no throwaways and cast-offs in this church. That there are no throwaways and cast-offs in your kingdom. And so God, we just ask that you would send us pick up those who've been thrown away and that you would send to us those who are just looking to find out if heaven and earth truly meet in this place. God, we know that you are the God of miracles, that you are the God of the impossible becoming possible not just possible, but probable because your spirit and your power moves in and through your people. And so God, we submit ourselves to be your vessel here in this space and beyond. So it's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.